Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. The glorious thing about tons of rain in Southern California are the wildflowers. We're talking blue, white, purple, and yellow flowers. The purple and blue are just starting to pop a little bit, which is neat because they're wildflowers and the poppies, California poppies, are so beautiful. But the downside is when we get this much rain in California, the allergies are awful for anyone who has seasonal allergies to pollens. I've spent all morning hosing off all our decks, and we have a lot of decks on our house, just trying to get some of the pollen away from the house. My eyes are swollen and bloodshot, and I think I may have rubbed all of my eyelashes out. So for anyone who has seasonal allergies, maybe you can relate. I spent earlier today sorting through all of the Easter candy with my two-year-old. Now, who thinks it's okay for a two-year-old to have that much candy? I do not know. But she did really well. We sorted. We opened up all the eggs and dumped it all out into a shoebox. And then she got to pick one candy. And we kept that one. And she was able to, or actually two candies. And she's able to pick from her little M&Ms and then her fruit snacks. And I, I did. I threw all the rest of the candy out. She just doesn't need it. <laughs> she really doesn't need it. Maybe you were also that mean mom who uh, only gives a little bit of candy to your child. And when I say a little bit, a few pieces, and she's content with that. For some reason, I think we think we have to give all that candy because everyone else is having it. No, she was content with just a couple pieces of the M&Ms, a couple M&Ms from the M&M pack and a couple of the fruit snacks from the fruit snacks. So anyways, that's what we were doing over here post Sunday Easter celebration. Why do I bring this up? Because it is still Easter. We're in that season where spring is all around us and we're maybe chomping down on the hidden Easter candy from your kid. I did not hide it from me. It's in the trash. It's gone. Uh, But it's still the resurrection and it's time that we are to celebrate in this octave of Easter. Yesterday here on Trending, I talked about how to celebrate an Easter octave. So if you didn't catch that episode, be sure to go and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen, especially the Relevant Radio app, and celebrate Mass and the many great prayers we have during this Easter season. Coming up a little later today, joining me will be Walt Heyer. If you haven't heard him before, he had a gender so-called reassignment surgery a number of years ago. At first, he was giddy for the fresh start he had, but hormones and sex change, genital surgery that is, couldn't solve the underlying issues that were driving his gender dysphoria. All of this is relevant as the gender transition craze is sweeping the nation and it's fascinating. Overseas, a lot of people aren't doing cross-sex surgeries in general anymore, especially for children. Yet here in the United States, this is something we continue to debate and battle. Uh, this is especially prevalent after just a couple weeks ago, we saw the Tennessee massacre killing six people at a Christian school. Three of those people were children, nine-year-old children, and the murderer was 
a woman who identified as transgender. So we can't ignore the fact that the mental health crisis and the transgender crisis go hand in hand. And that's what we'll talk about a little bit later with Walt Heyer here on Trending. It is the season of Easter and it is time to talk about hope and the resurrection. Joining me today is Father Nathan Cromley from the St. John Institute. They inspire, equip, and engage Catholics, especially young Catholics, to be leaders in excellence in their own life, formed as Catholics in the culture today, whether it's in your home, with your family, in business, growing the church and the great ministries that are out there. You can find his work at stjohninstitute.org. That's Saint S-A-I-N-T, johninstitute.org. Today we're going to talk about hope in the resurrection, the communion of saints, and God's providence, having hope in the help of God, which I think are things we really uh, need to hear at a time in the 21st century where we live in a culture of materialism. There's so much agony over uh, what we believe about death today, the crisis of fertility, so many things happening, yet we are the Easter people. We're meant to sing this Alleluia a song and recognize the triumph of the cross, but sometimes I think we like to stay hanging out on the cross and miss the fact, the miraculous reality of the triumph of the cross in Jesus Christ's resurrection. So to discuss hope today in that light is Father Nathan Cromley. Father Nathan, welcome back to Trending. Hi, Timory. It's always good to be here with you. Let's talk a little bit about death. Now, I know that's a, kind of an intense topic when we're talking about hope, uh, but I think it's important. We live in a culture where we don't really like the idea of death, and yet this is what Easter is all about, Jesus Christ conquering death itself. Uh, and as Catholics, we have a pretty unique view of the afterlife and death that used to be common, yet today seems to be countercultural in a world of artificial intelligence and so-called mercy killing through euthanasia. So let's talk a little bit about hope in the resurrection. I'd love to. Uh, and one of, the, one of the famous passages on this, and one of my favorite passages to talk about is John chapter 6. And I, this really gets me excited because it's an area, Timory, that we don't spend enough time talking about uh, until it's too late. Namely, the hope that we have in the resurrection of our faithful departed from the dead. And I want to talk with, uh, with you about this today because uh, as a priest, of course, we're there at these difficult moments when you lose someone that you love. And we usually, the readings at Mass at a funeral are beautiful and they're all about this hope. But it's hard to hear them during those moments of sadness. And so I want you to hear them before those moments so as to really build yourself up in faith for the truth. Because in John chapter 6, Jesus speaks directly about the link between faith in him, re reception of his body and blood, which of course we celebrate in the sacrament of the Eucharist, and the resurrection from the dead. He says in John 6, 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give is, the, is for the life of the world is my flesh. Of course, in, in verse 40, he had already said, anyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a link, in other words, between our reception of the Eucharist 
and the resurrection that Christ has promised for believers on the last day. And if we keep that in our hearts, it helps us to 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 con, to can be consoled in the death deaths that happen in our families, um, because we are, we we realize that we don't believe that death is the end. We in fact believe that those who follow Christ and those who receive His body and blood in, in the Eucharist have a pledge for the resurrection of their flesh from the dead, and we look forward to that day. What's interesting about what you just said, I keep thinking about how I awkwardly get an odd response from people who are Protestant and I'm still celebrating Easter two days later and I say (laughs) happy Easter. And and I think that that's significant based on what you just said, because, well, how do you keep celebrating Easter after the day itself? Well, it's based on the liturgical calendar. And what is a liturgy? It's oriented toward the reception, the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice, which is the source and summit of our faith. So I think it's fascinating for those who might not have connected Father Nathan, how you're drawing together this hope in the face of death with the Eucharist. I don't think I've ever actually heard someone connect death and the Eucharist uh, together when we talk about, you know, our loved ones who have died and having hope in the resurrection. I think that that's so fundamental there in John chapter 6, yet we don't really think about it Eucharistically. Well, and that's understandable in a sense, uh, but it's, it's not part, I mean, our tradition really emphasizes this point Aquinas, for example, St. Thomas Aquinas will even ask the question, is it possible uh, for someone to go to heaven without receiving the Eucharist because of what he says here in John chapter Mm -hmm. 6? And he says yes, because for the person, uh, the the essence of it is belief in Jesus's divinity and that that faith is enough for salvation. But at the same time, he, he at least asks the question even. Uh, because when you read John 6, there's another beautiful passage in, in verse 57. It says, as the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Right. So Aquinas, then, you know, he goes on to explain was well, you, you feed on it by faith. But the most perfect faith is also a faith that touches the divinity and then receives it in the sacramental life. And he does underscore that there is a link in any case between receiving communion and our hope that as our body has received his body in communion, so our bodies will share in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that's like a pledge. We actually say that the Eucharist is the pledge of the resurrection. And the, the church makes reference to this in the, 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 the funeral liturgy, where it's, it's briefly mentioned, but as they fed upon the body of Christ, so we have hope for their body to rise. And I just want to make the practical link for us, therefore, that there's a great consolation for us to be had. When, when we talk about our faith, we're talking about something that's real. You know, we're, 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 we're talking about a, a, a truth, not an opinion but a truth. And when we say that you've received the body of Jesus Christ in all of its power, I mean, that should blow all of us away. The, the realism of what that means to receive Holy Communion. One of the, the benefits of it is that if we've really received the body of Christ into our own, well, then our own body will rise from the dead. 
Mm, you make me think about how important it is, Father Nathan, to not have this drive-by approach to receiving Holy Communion. I know a lot of us sometimes have this attitude of, okay, I have to go to Mass on Sunday, and you squeeze Mass into everything else you're doing rather than having Mass be the central part of your entire weekend, alone that entire day of Sunday. Uh, But then you go to Mass, and it's easy to be distracted when you receive Communion. Instead of kind of just driving by, receiving Communion, and moving on, really taking the time to ponder the gift of Jesus Christ's body and blood, the significance of it, the reality of his presence. And I know this is something that's so important to your religious community, the community of St. John, is spending that 10 minutes or so after having received our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist to ponder that gift and how it transforms our lives and gives that hope. St. Francis de Sales gives us a beautiful image. He says that a soul, when leaving prayer, should resemble a, uh, a woman carrying a bowl filled to the brim with most, the most precious perfume possible. If you, if you had a bowl, and you can imagine that, it's a great image, in your hand, both hands, and that bowl was just filled to the brim of expensive perfume, you would walk very carefully, lest you move too quick, jostle the bowl, and spill the perfume. And he says, in the same way, a soul coming forth from prayer, and we can, of course, apply that to ourselves in Holy Mass, should, should have that inner recollection inside to, to not go too quickly into the next activity or to just lose the sense of what we've just received, but instead to walk carefully, carrying our souls filled to the brim with grace um, and, and, and with God. And I just love that image. And I think that, yes, practically it, it certainly helps to come to church, to Mass especially, early and prepare oneself with a few moments of silence. And at the end of Mass, yes, it, it's, a, it's a pious Catholic custom. It's called making an act of thanksgiving. And today it can be kind of looked at askance because everyone turns and starts speaking to their neighbor and everything. But it's still a wonderful thing, especially if you're single and you don't have a family, just to drop to your knees at least for a few moments and spend time with the Lord afterwards because the deeper your faith the deeper your hope there's a link between the realism that you give to your faith and the strength that that faith then gives to your soul called hope that allows you to move forward uh boldly in the challenges and in your life not acting like you don't have a light but walking as one who does that transition of a of a dead faith so to speak or a just a customary faith that most of our Catholics have into a living dynamic faith is where you allow faith to emerge into hope. Mm. You know, I think a lot of people, when they ponder Christmas, Christmas is a sign of hope often to them. But I think in our 21st century, we've lost the view of the celebration of Easter in most people's minds. I don't know if it's because, you know, the season has gone so quickly versus the build up to Christmas is more significant in, you know, the material world today. Uh, but what you said was so profound and connecting it to Easter, you said the deeper your faith, the deeper your hope. This is that season to ponder that in the celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ at Easter. Can you drill down a little bit more on that? Because the deeper your faith, the deeper your hope is something that I think most people have, uh, don't have, yet they want. And this is, I think, the turning point um, in, the, in the spiritual life. 
it's it's really beautiful, Timur. I'm glad that you're you're inviting that question because a lot of listeners, I'm sure, have it, and it's something that we priests ponder all the time. How do I help my people to catch fire, right, and to actually take their faith as something that becomes practical and life giving for them? And the secret is to remember that the thing that unifies a believer to their God is love. We call it charity in theology because we just like to be different. (laughs) But it means the love that we have for God, right? So when you have a love affair for God, number one, that love is fed by your faith because suddenly knowledge of God, what you hear and learn about God, uh, deepens your love. It feeds the love. But hope comes in terms of your actions. How then do I take the love that I have and allow the faith that, that, that speaks to that love to actually inform the decisions that I make in my life? Am I going to risk it, for example, to tithe? Am I really going to tithe 10% of my income? Am I really going to forgive the friend who just you know, stabbed me in the back? Am I really going to apply for that next job? Well, if you don't, your faith and your love will remain just kind of nebulous. You'll stay in the idea of it. But if you do suddenly take those risks and pass into action, you'll discover that you need something else, namely hope. You're going to need the truth that comes from the faith, the love you have in your heart, but it becomes real in this risky area where your real life is now engaged. And there you have to depend and trust in your God to get you through. That trust is a form of hope. It's what hope looks like. A hopeful person does things in the light of their faith out of love. Right? And that's why I said the movement of faith into hope makes me tell you or is a proof that your love is real. If you don't have the riskiness of a hope, your love is staying somewhere in the idea of love instead of becoming real for, for God. So the challenge for all of us then is to make that love real by taking risks for him, putting our flesh on the line, you know, sacrificing for God, doing things for him. And that riskiness of, oh my gosh, I just lost time or I might lose money or something might happen. Well, that's where hope is born. Then you say, Mm -hmm. well, no matter what happens, I trust in him and I'm going to take that next step. Otherwise, my love will never grow. It'll stay in an infancy stage. And we got to get over that if we're Catholics. And I love where you said putting your flesh on the line. That's everything Jesus Christ did in the sacrifice of the cross. But that is what brings hope is through willing, being willing to make that step. And as you mentioned, it's a risky step. In a culture of immediacy, we like to know, okay, I do A and Z occurs. But in our faith life, we it's not just a simple math equation always. You know, there there is a trust. There is a risk. Um, and there's providence, there's trusting in God's plan. Let's talk for a moment here um, about God's providence. I think that that ties into a topic that many people struggle with and maybe don't quite understand. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. That's Father Nathan Cromley from the St. John Institute. He's the founder of the St. John Institute that inspires, equips, and engages young Catholics to be leaders, to be excellent in their lives as Catholics from the home and the family to the business world they encounter. You can find his work at stjohninstitute.org. That's S-A-I-N-T, johninstitute.org. 
Father Nathan, let's tie this topic to providence. What is providence and what does it have to do with having hope in our lives? Uh, thank you, Timory. Providence comes from the Latin word. It's a, it's a fancy theological term, right? But it comes from Latin, providere, right? Providence. And that V-I-D, videre, it means to see ahead of time, right? Pro is ahead, videre, to see ahead, to foresee. And the idea is, is really comes, is very simple. Since God knows everything, he also knows the future. He knows what will happen from the first moment of our life to the last moment of our life. And since he sees all things and knows every moment of our life and he is good and loving, then our father will provide providence. He will provide for every moment of that of our life. That means that as I walk, I do not walk alone. And that I cannot screw up the plan of God, right? It's the idea. I can do sin. I can do things. That, but God will have foresaw and foreknown and provided for absolutely everything that I will do and everyone will do to me in my life to work all things out for the accomplishment of his holy will. And so that means we have to, of course, avoid sin. We have to do our best in life to do good and not evil and all of that. But it also means that somehow or other, I'm confident that God is going to provide and going to find a way and that he has the, the provision, the possibility, the power to bring everything in my life at every moment of my life to, to the good, to work out all things for the good for those who love him. And that gives me a radical hope uh, that, that founds my ability to take risks to do what is good and right, to undergo the cross, to take losses, right? To, to undergo pain in my life because I know that God is going to provide, that he knew in advance everything that would happen and that he is with me even now, no matter and what. Jesus talks quite a bit about providence without using that specific word, but by examples. I think, for example, of Luke chapter 12, when he talks about, I mean, look at how God provides for all of the world. Look at the animals. Uh, look at the flowers. Look at how everything flows and works together that God created. Do you not think that God has a plan for you? Do you not think that he will provide for you? And even when he sends his apostles and disciples out and he tells them not to take, you know, extra clothes, not to take, you know, food and provisions that God himself will provide in the midst of everything they're doing. But they have to put, as you said earlier, put their flesh on the line in order to do so and walk out and take that risky step of hope. And, and, and that's where I think a lot of us break down. We're afraid to do that. And that's why our love never becomes real. Remember that fundamental problem. What is a saint? A saint is someone who really loves God. <laughs> it's real simple. Mm -hmm. If you actually really love him, really love him, well, then you're, you become a saint. It's, it's a pathway to holiness because that love will push you into actual real action. And where a lot of people, is they really get scared. If I'm going to be chased with my, with my boyfriend all the way until marriage, oh, what if he leaves me, right? So there's fear. So I'm going to stay in fear and therefore disobey God's commandments rather than to live in hope. If I go to mass every Sunday, will I still be accepted in my social circles? What if they think that I'm a hater because I say I'm a, I'm a Catholic, for example, right? Well, there's fear again. The antidote to fear 
is a real love. But that requires from me that riskiness of hope. That's where providence can come in. Because then I could say, well, I don't know. They might reject me. My boyfriend might do this or that. But I know that God will provide for me. And so therefore, I'm going to follow his commandments. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to be a beacon of light no matter what, trusting in the goodness of God. That's the key. God's providence gives you courage to overcome the fears that keep your love from expanding. And that that connection to fear, trust, a hope, a providence, uh, there's so many things that we desire in our culture today. Uh, hindrances, roadblocks, you know, dysfunctions of the body, the mental health crisis. Yet in the heart of all of that, when you present this idea of God's government over our lives, even in the face of free will, it's startling. And I think it's a radical way of living for many people. It's countercultural to what we would like to believe in general. And yet that's the beautiful thing about being a Catholic. We get to bear witness to a whole different way of life, Timory. And I, I get more and more excited about it. Our culture is, is doing whatever it's going to do. And secularism is going whatever path it's going to take. But I can't help but find it in, incredibly boring <laughs> and unspeakably mm-hmm. lonesome. And I just can't believe that that type of culture is going to attract uh, followers long term. On the country, I kind of am more and more of the position to say, hey, I respect everybody. You can choose to think that you're, you're evolved from slime if you want. You can choose <laughs> to think that, that love is, a, I don't know, is some sort of you know, a lustful action or that sexuality is your identity. You can think those things. I got a different way, though. I got a way that's really compelling. I believe that God is my best friend. <laughs> I believe that I'm made for him. And I believe that his eternal life shines forth in me even now. And I'd like to invite you into that pathway. Why don't you feed with me on the body of the Savior? Who can forgive sins? You look at our cancel culture, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got it. Our cancel culture is, is so, is so uh, sad to me because it means you can never make a mistake. And right. you can never change your opinion. You can never learn anything, therefore. And I just look at that and I say, my gosh, eventually the Christian option is going to shine forth as a beautiful Mm -hmm. alternative because we say, hey, all sinners are welcome. People can make mistakes here and learn. You can actually progress in your life. You don't have to be perfect. You can actually be imperfect as a Christian (laughs) as long as you grow and move forward. And and Mm -hmm. I'm bold about that. And I think all of our listeners need to be. And that's where that provision comes into play. To believe that a God knows all things and is leading us to heaven is such an incredible prospect. I don't know who wouldn't want it. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, to live in a culture, that cancel culture that says you can't know anything, you can't change, is contradictory to the new life in Christ and the resurrection, the hope in the life to come, the hope in the transformation that God's grace will bring to us now. That's Father Nathan Cromley, the St. John Institute, S-A-I-N-T, johninstitute.org. Check out him and his work, Eagle Eye Ministries, retreats, programs, fantastic work. I'll post a link on social media in the episode notes. Coming back, detransitioning. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Joining me today on Trending is Walt Heyer. He had gender reassignment surgery some years ago. At first, he was giddy for the fresh start, which many people in 
that crisis of gender identity find themselves in. But after hormones and sex change, genital surgery, it didn't solve his underlying issues that were driving his gender dysphoria. I thought Walt Tyre was the best person to have on to discuss what's happening in the culture with this gender crisis, especially in light of current events, as especially here in the United States, we battle over whether or not it's appropriate for a child to take cross-sex hormones or go through with a so-called sex change. You can't change your sex. You can reconstruct things. And yet overseas, we're seeing many places overseas are banning cross-sex hormones and so-called sex changes. So what's going on, and especially in light of the recent event of the Tennessee Christian School Massacre, where six people were killed, including three nine-year-old children by a woman who identified as transgender, Joining me now to discuss what's happening in the culture right now is Walt Heyer from sexchangeregret.com. That's sexchangeregret.com. Walt, welcome back to Trending. What do you make of what is happening right now in light of current events? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Well, I think that what we really have known for many years, and at some point now we can see that it's a mental health issue, not a gender issue. Uh, people who have this desire to, as I did 40 years ago, uh, stem from something that happened during my childhood. And, um, you know, so we see people who are uh, harming other people. That's a mental health issue. It's not a gender issue. And uh, giving someone hormones and cutting off body parts is not uh, adequate therapy for people who have uh, serious mental health issues, whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, body dysmorphia, whatever it is, um, this is really the root cause of what's going on. And at some point, uh, we need to address the issue of actually giving people adequate pre-hormonal and surgical therapy. And that means what it used to be actually was uh, one or two years of uh, therapy uh, before you ever got the hormones and had surgery. Today, you can get it uh, upon demand. And mm -hmm. so this is what the outcome is when people are not uh, healthy psychologically, emotionally. Uh, they end up taking uh, strong hormones uh, and end up uh, becoming very aggressive and end up hurting people. I like what you just said that I think is very significant for those who don't realize it. And we've told this story here before in Trending that today people are immediately, if they even question slightly their gender, are immediately put into gender affirming therapy that even if I'm a girl and I say, you know, I'm feeling uncomfortable in my body, immediately we have therapists start telling me, would start telling me I'm a boy and would immediately write prescriptions for cross-sex hormones, puberty blocking drugs and even uh, possibly a surgery. Yet what you're saying is, hold on, let's pause and let as a baseline give adequate therapy prior to jumping into these truly, I mean, major interventions in damaging uh, chemicals, hormones, and surgeries for a person's body. I think that's pretty significant. Now, when you do that, Walt, what are we finding that occurs if someone actually does receive the therapy they need rather than affirming opposite sex therapy, hormone therapy, so-called hormone um, intervention and surgical intervention? Yeah, well, they don't uh, opt for the choice of having hormones and surgery when they realize that they have 
an adverse childhood experience, which is called ACEs, or they realized they were like one young man I worked with that was 15 years old, was hooked on pornography, or you have a group of uh, individuals who are doing this because in claiming to have gender dysphoria when they don't, um, because their friends are doing it. And so now we have a group of people who are actually afraid to not identify as transgender, Right. But people do not have gender dysphoria. I think that is so important to recognize. I have been, I've worked with thousands of individuals who have identified as uh, having a different uh, idea on their gender. None of them had gender dysphoria. They all had serious underlying comorbidities that when properly addressed, uh, they desist from having any desire to take hormones or surgery. Yeah, keep in mind, hormones and surgery are self destructive in their nature. Uh, so if you engage in taking hormones and having surgery, you're actually engaging in your own self-destruction. And this isn't something people are talking about yet. I know we had here on the show Abel Garcia a couple months back. Abel Garcia shared his story about how he was ushered into a transgender identity as a teenager. I think he's about 23, 25 years old now. And as soon as he even slightly questioned what was happening, he immediately was given the recommendation for cross-sex hormones and surgery and started being called a woman. And yet, he had, as you're referring to, obvious comorbidities that were not being treated. And now he himself is scared of going to a therapist after the damage therapists have done by pushing and forcing a transgender identity. Yeah, well, Abel Garcia was one of my clients, and I got him into proper therapy, and that's why he detransitioned. And um, so he got the kind of treatment that uh, helps people discover what the real underlying issues are. So I worked with Abel for a couple of years and connected him up with a good therapist. So I know him very well. So he's a typical uh, case where uh, the, the gender clinics only make money if they're pushing hormones and pushing surgery. They do not care about your welfare. They do not care about the long-term outcome. They don't care if you uh, regret the, taking them or not. The only thing they care about is giving you hormones and surgery. I want anybody listening to my voice tonight, do not have anyone ever go to a gender clinic or a gender therapist. They will mm -hmm. ruin your life. What you really need to go to is probably a trauma therapist or some psychotherapist that doesn't have a rainbow flag waving in the window of his uh, business. Mm -hmm. That's very true. You mentioned comorbidity. So often what we've spoken to yourself and many therapists on this topic, that when a person is suffering with some form of gender dysphoria or something's presenting itself as gender dysphoria, that usually there are comorbidities that are underlying that were precursors to any sudden gender and the sudden gender onset or confusion. Yeah. What are some of those common comorbidities apart from adverse childhood effects that have impacted sexual orientation? Yeah, adverse childhood effects actually cause mental disorders. Adverse childhood effects alter the, anytime you suffer an adverse childhood experience, it alters the brain at the level of where your identity is being formed. And so what, that, what in, happens there is you end up with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, body dysmorphia is probably one of the big ones. It, uh, these individuals, none of them 
have gender dysphoria. They say they have gender dysphoria until such time as they get with me and I hook them up and get them to understand that gender dysphoria, remember gender dysphoria was only put on the DSM in 2013. That's when the explosion happened. Prior to that, it was gender identity disorder, which required a therapist to look for the mental disorder that was causing their discomfort. When you went to using gender dysphoria as a diagnosis, there's no reason now for the therapist to look for the disorder. So we're skipping over the looking for the disorder that would help them avoid taking hormones and surgery. Hmm. And I think that's really significant what you, you just said. You referred to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And so the fact that this has changed over the last 15 years, not even, is significant because before therapists, psychologists were working with people and they say, ah, if there is a crisis with gender, there was something more behind it. We didn't stop there. Yet suddenly we're saying, oh, this is what's happening and this is who you are, which if even if you look at the textbook recommendations for the American Psychological Association and others, they're not supposed to be treating gender dysphoria or as it is currently called the way they are today. Yeah. Well, it's, I got to tell you, it's not gender dysphoria. I haven't found one person with gender dysphoria. I've seen thousands of people say they have gender dysphoria. When mm -hmm. I sit down with them, they do not have gender dysphoria. They have what is known. I wrote an article in the uh, public discourse about it. They have generalized dysphoria. It's not specific to their gender, which if we were to change the dialogue and say you have generalized dysphoria, that helps people dig in and try to find out what the underlying cause is. And if we avoid doing anything to try to treat gender issues, we actually can help people. The harm is done when we say you have gender dysphoria, because that's the key that unlocks the door to hormones and surgery. Generalized dysphoria requires you to actually look for the comorbid disorder and find out what's causing their discomfort. And I always ask every client, what happened that caused you to not like who you are? Because this is not about gender. This is about something that caused you to not like who you are. Tell me what happened. A hundred percent of the time, they can tell me. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And you know, I really understand what you're saying on that note, because I think it's very significant working in the crisis pregnancy situation with women in crisis pregnancy, wanting um, that abortion, you know, it doesn't, it's not about that abortion they're experiencing. It's about all of these life circumstances that have led them to that point. And often it has to do with, you know, taking sex outside of the context of marriage, allowing their bodies to be used. And often it goes back to something that happened in their life where they determined that they were okay with allowing their bodies to be used and abused or something horrific happened to them as a child that led them to the point we're in. And that's why I think this crisis in our culture surrounding sexuality, the contraception culture, the abortion culture, the pro-transgender and same-sex oriented attitude we have, all of it is a disorientation with regard to our sexual identity, the gift of our life, the gift of sexual complementarity, the gift of having children, and the damage that has been done to that at times for a person from their very childhood. Yeah, it's a mental health crisis. And I will say that of uh, the thousands of people I've worked with, 90% of them are heterosexual men. Uh, this is not an issue of sexuality in many cases, because many of these individuals um, suffer from what's known as autogynephilia. 
and autogynophilia is where men dress up and become uh, sexually aroused by wearing women's clothing. That is not gender dysphoria. That is a um, sexual function disorder that requires treatment. And so um, Leah Thomas, the swimmer, in fact, admitted mm-hmm. to having uh, uh, autogynophilia, being an autogynophilia. I think that's significant because no one talks about that. I've actually not heard that phrase thrown around, autogynephilia. So you're saying autogynephilia is where a heterosexual man who is attracted to women uh, gets some sort of arousal or kick out of dressing up as someone of the opposite sex. And that's exactly what Will Thomas, who calls himself Leah Thomas, is celebrated as a cross-sex swimmer, is actually admitting to having. Yes, he's admitted to having it. And I can tell you that many of the men that you see parading around in dresses on television and are given badges of honor are people who have autogynephilia. They put on women's clothing, they look at themselves in the mirror, and they become the object of their sexual affection. This has been known for many, many years. It's just that they want to identify as a transgender and not as having autogynephilia. So Thomas uh, actually admitted to it. Wow. That's significant for those who maybe haven't heard this perspective, this disorientation with regard to who we are, identity and sexuality that isn't being healed. We need help. We need answers. Well, I know you have a number of therapists you recommend. Uh, You can find Walt and his great work at sexchangeregret.com. That's sexchangeregret.com. I'll post on social media as well as the episode notes. Walt, thank you for your testimony and for helping so many young people today who are struggling with their identity. And it's not found in a newfound sexual identity, but through an authentic understanding of themselves and healing from whatever wound they may have experienced. We'll come right back here on Trending and talk about being 30 and not knowing what to do with your vocation. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. I love taking questions because it puts a pulse on what's happening in the culture. And one topic near and dear to my heart is the challenge of what we could argue delayed vocation or finding yourself at a point in life where you didn't quite expect to be here and you're not sure what direction to take. Joining me now on Trending is Anne. Anne's on the line from San Diego, California. Welcome to Anne, or welcome to Trending. Anne, what's your question today? Hi, thank you so much. Um, yeah, pretty much what you said. I'm like in my early 30s. I discerned religious life for quite a bit. And I was just really struck by something you said on the show yesterday. I don't know if it was like about women, like, um, like getting into a career and then they're so old like, that they don't have kids. They can't have kids when they get married. Um, and so, cause I'm at this point where I'm thinking about going back to school and getting a career or something. Um, and honestly, going back onto what you've been talking on today, like have been working on a lot of personal healing. Um, so I honestly, if you can speak to any of that, I'm just kind of like, what am I supposed to do in life? And even like maybe not having a full grasp of my identity and just um, like knowing who I am. Cause I can't give myself if I'm not even like in um, like knowing, <laughs> knowing that. Right. Um, so I don't know, is that enough for you to speak to or. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you mentioned so many important things. Like here you are. I don't think you're the only person that said you're like, I'm in my early thirties and I'm not where I thought I was going to be. 
I'm not where I hoped. I'm wondering where I should be. Um, there's this directional question, trying to figure out where to go. And there's this discernment, like there's this deep desire. And I'm assuming, you know, you're a person of faith, especially because you especially mentioned, you know, that you discerned religious life. I think there are a lot of elements to this, especially for us women. I think it brings a keen sorrow as well as there is a fear and concern with regard to fertility. And so I get it. Like I get where you are at. And I think that first you noted something that I don't think it's discussed very often, Anne, that you recognize there's some healing that needs to go on in your own life. And I think for a lot of people, we have seen a culture that many have gone through unscathed, whether you come from a broken home, whether you've experienced some form of abuse in the past or just made some really bad choices and are going through a conversion and you're picking back up the pieces in the grace of Christ to figure out where you're supposed to be now. You know, so many people have different things and places that they're coming from that can cause those wounds. And so I think you hit the nail on the head with recognizing that maybe part of what's going on is that I need to open myself up to that healing uh, as I step into that next phase in that discernment. So I think first, first most, when you're in this place in life, and I've been there. I get it. You know, I, my husband and I dated for a really long time, longer than we ever should have dated. And we got married at almost pa- basically the average today for many first time marriages for people, which was, I think we were about 27 or I was 27. Uh, and so, you know, I get it. I was right there. You know, I'm tracking with where you're at. And it wasn't where I hoped I'd be. And there was a lot of dissatisfaction at times, yet there was faith on the other side. And what I really recognize that in the midst of all of that, that in the midst of that dissatisfaction, that confusion with regard to where you're at, um, that need for gratitude is so important that we need to learn that God has provided for right where I'm at and I need to be grateful for what I have today. And that needs to be the catalyst to take me into everything else. So we've been talking a lot about hope and in Hope is, you know, understanding that it's okay to ask that question, where should I be? I mean, that's the ultimate question at the heart of hope is that we're orienting ourselves toward heaven, which is something in a place we know some something about. But at the same time, there's also that great mystery in what that union with God in heaven looks like. And so sometimes I think in looking at our vocation, we have to be open to that level of mystery and having that hope in the midst of that question, where am I and where am I meant to be? And I don't think you can have that hope unless you're living a sacramental life. And I think that's what's so fundamental and why your question is relevant today. That whole conversation we were having with Father Nathan Cromley earlier on the topic of hope, how hope is centered on the Eucharist and how that's fundamental to the life that God offers to us that it's Eucharistic. And to receive our Lord Jesus Christ in Holy Communion, we're called to be in a state of grace. And so going to communion regularly to receive our Lord, being in a state of grace through the sacrament of reconciliation are kind of that baseline, I think, for starting to have that hope when you're asking that question, where should I be? And then starting to make that direction of, okay, well, where is my orientation? I'm single. I don't have a family. Maybe you're desiring to have children uh, and be married. Maybe you're still asking that question of religious life in the back of your head as well. You're questioning whether or not to go to school and discernment is exactly where you're at. And I would really argue if you're at this point and you truly are discerning 
a few key things need to happen. Number one, you need to learn to be grateful for where you are, even if it's a place of dissatisfaction that you're feeling emotionally, but intellectually and prayerfully, you can come to that place of gratitude. Because there are always going to be moments in everyone's life, no matter where they're at, where dissatisfaction is present. And maybe that's part of what needs to be learned. Two, again, having that hope and living a sacramental life. But three, I think when we're asking for, you know, where should I go, that service is at the heart of where we're living our lives. So whether that's maybe you are discerning going to school and taking a different trajectory with school, there with your career potentially, there is nothing wrong with that. If you are not married, if you're open to the gift of having children, yet this is where you're at, you're not married and you don't have children at this time discerning the potential of a different education course in school, there's nothing wrong. But I think what's at the heart of answering that question is inside all of us, whether we're male or female, is that biological reality that we are capable of having children through the grace and gift of God. And that spiritual motherhood and fatherhood should be something that we're practicing within our discernment of our direction. So seeing ourselves in practicing that maternal gift of nurturing and giving life to the culture uh, as we are able to, especially as women, I think is important. What are your thoughts about that, Anne? Oh, wow. Um, thank you. You brought me to tears. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't really know what to say. <laughs> it was like super good, especially when you said like being grateful because I like kind of recognize um, it's just really lacking because I think there's just like a lot of hurt um, and then confusion with like spending so much time in religious life and it's like what am I doing right now um, so yeah that was the best and then when you said living a sacramental life um, mm. because like staying close to our Lord I feel like is just going to be giving like giving me the clarity and even like the courage to make the next step. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah. And then you said about being like a spiritual, like for me being a spiritual mom and like I work with children right now. So I'm like, okay, yes. Like I can still like live my like motherhood, I guess out. Um, I think like I just have a fear, like I'm never going to have my own kids or something. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, and like I have to be surrendered to that. So it's just kind of like, yeah, <laughs> just trying to be at a place of surrender. Yeah. But yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> You're at a point in where there's an opportunity for tremendous growth. Seize the day. Take that opportunity. Live that sacramental life. Practice gratitude because no matter what place you find yourself in today, five years ago, 20 years from now, uh, you're going to need that gift of gratitude to not find dissatisfaction where you're at then in life. Like you said, coming back up on that healing and practicing that spiritual motherhood, understanding the gift of your motherhood, but not regretting if you don't have children. I know that's a tough place to be in if you've done what's in your power to not avoid having children. I think a lot of people who have avoided children for years find themselves in a place of regret. But for those who have not avoided having children and have been open to marriage and life, and it hasn't happened somehow through God's providence and timing, that we trust that we're right where we need to be and that we're grateful for that place we're in. Best of luck, Anne. We're praying for you and for your vocation. All people find themselves in that single place. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Dr. Philip Chavez will join me for our weekly Gentleman's Hour Wednesday to talk about the God-given pillars and responsibilities of a man. 
in his life and how he can and is meant to be a leader, a protector, and a provider. Also talk about Elon Musk and others who are urging a pause on artificial intelligence. Join me daily at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.